0: Today, I talk with Hawaii Senator Stanley Chang. What a great conversation it was, not just because it allowed me to daydream about my next Hawaiian vacation, but because he has one of the most substantial and thoughtful approaches to solve the housing crisis that I've heard. We also talked about how COVID may have permanently changed Hawaii's economy, the state's efforts to build a resilient energy system, and, if you stick around to the end, his secret places to visit in Oahu that'll make your stay that much more magical. Enjoy. Senator Stanley Chang, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's wonderful to be speaking with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's an honor to be here.
0: So let's start with how the Hawaiian Islands are doing post-COVID, maybe in the midst of COVID. How are you all doing?
1: Well, thanks for asking. It's been a lot of ups and downs, like I'm sure every other jurisdiction I think due to the fact that we are a small chain of isolated islands, people are very aware of the risk of the emergency rooms and hospitals and ICUs being overwhelmed with COVID patients. So we have had a higher vaccination rate, we have had stricter restrictions largely speaking, than most of the country for most of the time. But that has not prevented large surges. In fact, I think we're probably in one of the largest surges right now, even though most of the restrictions have gone away. These surges won't go away, even over time. And so it's been challenging for us, just like for the rest of the country.
0: How do you think the pandemic has impacted the island in terms of long-term ways of thinking about these global pandemics and just generally the maybe some of the transformations that have come in our economy as a result as well.
1: Early on in the pandemic, when tourism basically stopped completely, Hawaii was very, very hard hit. We had the worst economic crisis in generations here and Maui County actually had the highest unemployment rate of any county in the country. And that caused a lot of people to really reexamine the role that tourism plays in our economy. And there was a lot of advocacy for different industries, for tech. Now, then, of course, the remote worker phenomenon has been expanding here in Hawaii. And that's caused yet another wave of anxiety, because there's a fear that with our limited housing supply, that remote workers are going to overwhelm everything. So I think while there have been a lot of concerns, there hasn't been a consensus as to how to move forward. And I imagine that it'll take strong leadership, perhaps from the next governor, to really focus our efforts for a new master plan or a new idea, a new vision for where we should be going forward.
0: You've been a real visionary and leader in the area of housing. Can you talk about, which is obviously impacted by both the economic downturns, but then also, as you say, by remote workers and and other folks, can you talk about some of those efforts and any progress you're seeing?
1: For the last four years, I have been working on the Singapore model of public housing and really adapting that to our circumstances here in Hawaii. We have a very severe housing shortage in Hawaii. The median home price in three of the four counties is over $1.2 million. And this is nothing new. This housing shortage has been around as long as I've been alive. And I think one of the biggest obstacles is that people don't actually try to solve it. People propose Band-Aids, but I haven't heard very many actual solutions that would be 100% solutions that would actually solve the problem. And so when I became the housing chair of the committee here in the state Senate four years ago, I really, that's what I really wanted to do is to solve the problem such that every future generation of local people will have a good place to live one of the things I did was to travel around the world and see where there were jurisdictions that had solved this problem. And Singapore is one of the most famous. They build really attractive, good quality units at a very reasonable price for all their citizens. And they sell 99-year leasehold units on them. They are very well serviced by public transportation. And Because Singapore is also another island jurisdiction, because it has very limited land area, and because there are a lot of other similarities between our two places, I've been really trying to adapt that model here. And I'm pleased to say that we've made some significant progress this year.
0: Tell us a little bit more about that model, because it struck me as I was reading about your work. Hawaii, obviously, is very land-constrained implicitly, but so many of us feel land-constrained in our own jurisdictions and that... Maybe you just have a model here that might just work for the rest of us as well.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there are really two ways that jurisdictions can go where jurisdictions have actually solved the housing shortage. And so, one is maybe the more familiar to us. Because one of the great models is Houston. And basically, Houston doesn't have zoning, it has a very low level of land use regulation, anyone can build anything anywhere, anytime. And that's facilitated by the fact that Houston has no natural barriers like mountains or bodies of water. So it can sprawl endlessly in every direction. And it works for Houston, they still have a lower home price than the national average, despite the fact that they've been the fastest growing metropolitan area in the United States for something like 40 years now. Now, in a place like Hawaii, where we do have lots of mountains and we do have severe land constraints, that model is really not possible and it's not politically realistic to expect that the people of Hawaii would be willing to develop all the agricultural and conservation and forests and other pristine natural environments that we cherish so much here at Hawaii. So the other alternative is the Singapore model, which other jurisdictions like Vienna also adapt, which is to basically build lots and lots of high-density housing, serve it with public transportation so you're not getting the Houston-style traffic on the freeway type of transportation, and sell those units at cost or pretty much at cost to local people. In a place like Singapore, actually, housing is pretty much a right. It's the same way that we think about public schools or public highways or public parks. We expect that the state of Hawaii is going to educate every single child that's eligible, which is pretty much every child. And we think about it as a right. And so even during the pandemic, when the economic crisis was the worst in generations and tax revenues had plummeted, there was no talk about restricting public education only to those who needed it, to those who fell below a certain income restriction. And that's the way that people think about it in Singapore as well. Housing is a right. Public services like housing are for the public. And hopefully that's what we can instill here in Hawaii as time goes by too.
0: What are the funding streams that you plan to leverage in order to to get this housing built?
1: So Singapore's housing subsidy is actually quite small. And if you look at it and calculated it in certain ways, it's actually a revenue positive program of the government. It certainly is in Hong Kong, which houses 50% of its population in public housing. Singapore houses 80% of its population in public housing. So I wouldn't propose a really massively subsidized public housing program. I don't think that's scalable because I simply don't think that the public appetite for large new taxes to pay for a program like this is there. So what I've been proposing is a revenue neutral type of program where there, if anything, there's only a very slight subsidy for the infrastructure, such as the wastewater, which is really constrained here in Hawaii. But by and large, you'd be paying for what you get and getting what you pay for, which would be a $400,000 unit That would be a two-bedroom unit, which I understand is probably a lot higher than in a lot of other jurisdictions here. But believe me, that's way below market here in Hawaii. And so I think a lot of people in Hawaii would be able to buy a $400,000 unit that are currently shut out of the $1.2 million median home price that we have now.
0: And the second piece of the puzzle, right, is land. It struck me reading the articles about different efforts you made that per Housing Debates Everywhere... Everybody wants this kind of housing, but each parcel is difficult or maybe not the right spot. (laughs) How are you finding the land on which you can develop this housing?
1: Ryan, that's really a great question because that's kind of the core of how this program was developed. That's the underlying question that I wanted to address is every time we propose a new project or development somewhere, the community has a tough time with it. They tend to come out in large numbers to raise concerns about traffic, about noise, about congestion, about changing the character of the neighborhood. And you know, these are all legitimate concerns. Sometimes these concerns are called not in my backyard or NIMBY, NIMBYism concerns. Other names are neighborhood defenders or place attachment. And what I really wanted to do was to devise a program that would address many of these concerns. And so if we're concerned about traffic, well, no problem. We'll confine these developments to state-owned lands that are on top of the rail stations that are currently being built so that they will be car light or even car free and will not add more traffic to the freeways. If we're concerned about developing our precious agricultural or conservation land, well, no problem, we'll confine these developments to the urban areas where the state already owns land, like I said, along the rail stations. If we're concerned about these units being used as parking lots for the cash of wealthy overseas investors who are simply here to speculate and not actually live in the units, well, that's no problem because the state can simply require that these units be purchased only by Hawaii residents who are owner occupants and who own no other real property. If we're concerned that the units are gonna be priced out of reach for most local people, well, no problem. We'll simply price them at a low enough rate that is still revenue neutral or close to revenue neutral, $400,000 for a two bedroom unit which enables many, many people who are currently unable to buy property to get into the market and so on and so on. And so while it will never truly fully address the objections of any community, I think that by addressing most of the objections that are raised in neighborhood board meetings and community forums, and so on, whenever current new developments are proposed, I think we can really adapt a new type of housing to our needs that are expressed by our community. And that's what makes this program different from many of the other programs that have come before.
0: I like that. And I think if you can figure out a way to thread that needle, so many of us will be grateful for the model that we can try to adapt in our communities. I wanna talk one more piece about housing and then really get into your story, which is the homeless population. Many of us along coasts and with temperate environments have large homeless populations. How's that playing out in Hawaii and how do you address that piece?
1: Homelessness is one of the biggest problems here in Hawaii. When you look at opinion polls about what the top issues are among Hawaii voters, housing and homelessness or homelessness and housing are routinely ranked number one and two. And that's nothing new. That's been true since virtually the beginning of my career when I first ran back in 2010 for the city council. And I'm sorry to say that although a variety of programs have been proposed, we still haven't come close to solving the problem. And that's why this continues to be such a persistent issue here. I think that the only way that we can solve homelessness is by solving housing. So there's a demand for about 10,000 units per year of housing every year here in Hawaii. And we produce only about 2,000 units per year. So it should come as no surprise that the units that are being built are meeting only the top 20% of the income levels of the demand. And as a result, 80% is... Of the demand is not being met and that's the middle class, but it's also the poor and it's also those who are the most vulnerable. And As a result, there have been a couple of major responses. One is a large outflow of population from people who simply can't afford it and that's why Hawaii, surprisingly, has lost population for five straight years. You know, We're not a rust belt state, we do have good weather, we have a low unemployment rate now and before the pandemic but people simply cannot afford to live here. And the second and even more visible aspect is that people simply cannot afford rent, and so they end up homeless. So the state is finally getting serious about this issue. I'm personally optimistic about a program called the Ohana Zones Program, Ohana meaning family, where the state has been providing land and expediting permitting processes for tiny home villages for innovative new ways of housing people that are really targeted at homeless people and converting encampments into sustainable communities. And that has launched over the last couple of years with some success and that is being expanded with some really great new legislation this year. So I am hopeful, Ryan, that after a couple more years, we'll really start to see this program take root And we'll really be able to move the needle on homelessness as we also take steps to alleviate the housing
0: shortage. Fantastic. We'll all be watching and hopefully many of us will be visiting more than a good reason to come visit your islands. Let's talk a little bit about how you found yourself wrestling with these impossible issues but making some real progress. What was your path into public service? How did you get engaged in taking on these issues for your community?
1: Well, first, let me say, Ryan, that I would love to have you come visit Hawaii. And I <laughs> want to extend a special invitation to all your listeners. Please do come visit. Please seek me out. I would love to show you around about you know, the beautiful islands, the values, the culture that we all love so much here in Hawaii. And that's actually what really inspired me to run. So my parents are both immigrants from China. And my dad got here with very little back in the 1960s, but was able to buy a house and put my brother and me through school. And he had a good life. He was a UH professor at the University of Hawaii, a state employee with one job. For me to buy that same house that he bought in 1983 with one state salary, with my state salary as a state senator, it would take me over 40 years of my entire salary. And that's the fundamental problem that we have here. It's no longer possible for young people to have a good job and to raise a family and to buy a home. And much of this is driven by the spiraling cost of housing caused by the housing shortage. And so, for people, millennials, for Gen Z, most people take for granted that they're going to have to leave. They're going to go to college on the mainland and they're going to leave. And that's true. I've asked, high school students from across the state, from the urban areas, from the rural areas, from Oahu, the main island, from the rural islands, from the neighbor islands. And that's unfortunately the refrain that I kept hearing over and over again, that I continue to hear. And that's why I wanted to run. That is the biggest issue facing our young people in Hawaii today. And so I've really tried to make that the focus of my career, which is why housing is the cornerstone of the policies that we're really trying to solve here. Back in 2010, the city council seat came open, the incumbent had been termed out, and I saw that the opportunity was there, and we had tough competition, but the overwhelming advice that I received from experienced political figures was to knock on doors, and so that's what I did. Like a lot of the guests that I've heard on this program, I just knocked on doors full time pretty much for a year and a half, knocked on 19,000 doors and was able to win that election not because i was smarter or had better policies or was better looking or anything than my opponent but because i knocked on more doors and i think the voters really really appreciate that and i think at the end of the day they say to themselves in the voting booth hey i may not agree with everything that stanley chang wants to do or tells me but he took the time to come to the door and to ask me what i thought the top issues were and i really appreciate that and Running for the state Senate in 2016 did the same thing against a 20-year incumbent and won that race as well by spending a year knocking on another 12,000 doors. So it's both harder, but also not as hard to get into this as you might think. It's really just, can you put your head down and knock on as many doors as you possibly can? You know, thousands of doors, maybe 100 doors every day, day after day for months, for a year, for over a year. And that's what I think the voters really want is somebody that they can share their concerns with and it's going to be accessible to them. That's the way to get into this business.
0: So let me ask, because I imagine some of our non-elected listeners are like, knocking on doors sounds scary, intimidating, exhausting, etc. How did you find the energy to do it, keep doing it, and what kept you going when it is a not an easy way to sort of spend an afternoon, a weekend, et cetera.
1: You know, Hawaii is a warm place and it can be really hard to come to terms with the idea of just sweating all day long. It's humid during the summer. It is, It is not fun. And I think for me, what kept me going is, you know, those competitive juices would get going every time I saw my opponent out there. And I would just think to myself, man, you know if he's out there and he's knocking on doors and he's waving signs and doing all these other campaign activities, I got to be out there too. I've worked so hard already. I can't just let that other guy win. And that's just for me, probably for everyone. There's a different story of how to get those juices flowing. Some people, they just, they have that incredible passion, they're motivated by an issue that they think is the most important issue in their neighborhoods, or their opponent just is in the wrong place on some issue or is out of touch with the community in some really fundamental way. And that's, you know, what's motivating them. One of the questions that I ask whatever I'm part of helping to do candidate trainings or talking to potential candidates one-on-one is to think about the issues that matter the most to them. And the way I phrase it is, if you could wave a magic wand and pass any one bill, what would that be? Or conversely, fill in the blank. I would rather lose the election than vote for a blank bill. And I think that really helps to focus people. You know, It's not about you. It's not about your ego what it is about is really helping the community and it's really about keeping in mind what it is that you're fighting for and doing this really thankless task i think that really helps to get people focused on why this is important and why it's important to get out there every day and do the really not so fun nitty-gritty aspects of campaigning
0: i think that's really interesting to sort of set those two guardrails for yourself right one positive one negative and then exist within those so that you're listening engaging but have your values established before you begin that process that's a that's a fascinating exercise
1: yeah well you know you've been an elected official ryan and i know you know many and it's very easy to lose your way in this game i think a lot of people there are a lot of trappings of elective office that kind of seduce people and even more than that, I think that this business, it tends to bring out the worst in people. We've heard many times that politics is a swamp, and it is a swamp, because there are a lot of aspects of the job that bring out the worst in people, that bring out the worst in human psychology, whether it's the trappings, whether you see people who are motivated by the worst things, like getting revenge on people who have slighted them, or you know wanting to be a control freak and just be the gatekeeper for anything that passes it's really not a pretty picture and it's very easy to lose one's way. And that's why it's so important to try to keep your eye on a North star and to really understand why you're doing this, to keep your integrity and your values and your ideals, even though a lot of people lose their way.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That ability to look in the mirror and have an honest conversation with yourself as you're trying to balance competing interests and not get lost in the unimportant Parts of elected life is so important. You mentioned the heat <laughs> of walking around in the summertime and knocking on doors, which obviously brings us to climate change. And as islands in the middle of the Pacific, you are especially vulnerable to sea level rise and other impacts. How are you thinking about climate change, renewable energy, and preparing for that future for Hawaii?
1: So climate change is nothing new here in Hawaii. If you go down to the streets of Waikiki, our main tourist district, during high tides, you can see the seawater has risen to the point where it's actually coming out of the storm drains. And so The physical evidence of climate change and sea level rise is very plain for anyone to see here in Hawaii. And so we've taken some steps that have put us ahead of a lot of places. So over one third of all houses in Hawaii now have rooftop solar, thanks to some pretty great state and federal incentives over the years. But that being said, there are still significant challenges to come. The Hawaii energy sector, our electricity is the most dependent on petroleum of any state in the country. Believe it or not, a large majority of our electricity still comes from oil, even though most of the country transitioned away from oil back in the 1970s during the oil shocks. And so we are very vulnerable to the price increases that we've all seen with the rising prices of gas due to the war in Ukraine and so on. But we're also still emitting a ton of carbon just to generate our electricity, even though with geothermal power from our volcanoes, our abundant sunshine, our really great wind energy potential, we could be the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. And so we have some positive goals. We have a 100% renewable energy goal by the year 2045, which certain islands are faster ahead of other islands. Oahu, unfortunately, is lagging behind islands like Kauai and the Big Island, but we also have a great 100% renewable energy transportation goal that just passed this past year too, which is really fantastic as well, because once we do transition our electricity to 100% renewable energy, the last remaining major source of carbon emissions here in Hawaii is going to be our ground transportation, our cars, which of which we are very car-centric and car-dependent. So these are not going to be easy. I don't know that anyone in Hawaii has a clear vision, a clear picture, a clear plan of how to get from here to 100%, but setting the goals is the first step. And it's really helped to focus the policy-making community the minds on how do we get there? And I hope that our sister states and municipalities and local governments will be able to do the same in the future, too.
0: Absolutely critical. And all of us who live next to oceans and have most of our development adjacent to it, there's a reckoning coming and we have to prepare and reduce impacts. I'd like to ask a little bit about your future. You went to Harvard. You went to Harvard Law School. You could be doing anything you wanted, virtually anywhere in the world, and you're there serving in your hometown. How do you think about your future and choices for service or professionally as you think about the next 10 years?
1: Politics is a noble profession, as you know, and as you fight for, and as you try to get the word out about. And it is the field that our society has chosen, for better or for worse, to make a difference in our communities and to improve our communities. This is a system we have, like it or not, and it has a lot of drawbacks and it is swampy. And there are people who are not in it for the right reasons. And certainly the pay is is not good here in Hawaii or pretty much anywhere else in the country. But if there is a major problem in your community, in Hawaii, let's say it's the housing shortage is the number one issue. This is the way our society has decided to address those issues, and we're focusing here at the state and local level. The truth is, I think that the housing shortage in Hawaii, I don't think the federal government can solve it. I think by the nature of the problem, by the land use regulations that are in place, by the availability of land, by the availability of funding, I think that really the only the state government can solve this problem. And Ryan, let's be honest, there are people who with the fanciest of titles, United States Senator, United States Congress member, cabinet secretary, even presidents, governors, mayors, they come and they go. I often ask my friends or people who are thinking about getting into politics, how have they changed? How has Senator so-and-so changed your life? How has governor so-and-so changed your life? How has mayor so-and-so changed your life? And honestly, It's not that easy for someone to think of, okay, this particular elected official did this one thing that has impacted my life. But if we were to actually end the housing shortage in Hawaii, if we were to make public housing like public school, where every single person in Hawaii got a low-cost leasehold unit for themselves... Their children would get it, their grandchildren would get it, and therefore, Hawaii would become a reasonable, affordable place to live for every future generation, that would fundamentally change the social compact in Hawaii. That would change people's lives. It would utterly change Hawaii. And that, to me, is way more exciting than having all the fancy titles in the world. And I have to say, when I talk to people that I know at the federal level, being one of 435 in Washington, being one of 100 people in Washington, even if you're higher than that, it is very, very hard to make something happen that wouldn't have already happened. And that's why I think it's so important that people get involved at the state and local levels, because this is your chance to actually make something happen that would not otherwise have happened. I mean, think about that. That's so powerful. And that's what I hope to do over the next 10 years.
0: I love that. And as you say, it's the system for better or worse we've chosen And frankly, as Washington gets more dysfunctional and all indications are we're heading that way, it's going to be even more important, the efforts at the state and local level to address these major issues. My final question is, let's say uh, we're heading to Hawaii in 2023 to see your amazing success and model that you've created for housing and resilience and everything else. Give me 24 hours in Oahu that I otherwise wouldn't have be able to plan or know about if we come to visit you. First, please do reach out to me. And I do mean
1: it because I've had the chance to meet many electeds and people who are just interested over the years. And it's super inspiring to me to hear about all the issues that are going on in other people's jurisdictions. Because I always tell people the number one travel tip, whether it's Hawaii or anywhere else, the biggest advice that I can give you that will make the biggest difference in your trip is if you know somebody who's already there, who lives there, because they can open the door to all these experiences that you wouldn't otherwise find. And so Hawaii has so many beautiful, natural places to visit, beaches, mountains, hikes, and so on. A lot of those are quite famous, but if I can highlight a few that are in and around my district, there's a pair of really just spectacular coastline areas. One is called China Walls, one is called Spitting Caves. They're both in Hawaii Kai, just outside my district. And at China Walls, watching the sunset you jump into the water, it's a little bit of a cliff and you jump into the water, but especially around sunset, the place really comes alive and it's just tons of young people. Often they're playing music, they're bringing their significant others, they're jumping into the water, they're you know just enjoying relaxing on shore. Spitting Caves is a much higher cliff. The waves come in and they spit out of the cave with a lot of force, which is where that got its name. And you can jump into the water, although it's much, much higher and you have to be a real daredevil to do so there. But just hanging out, enjoying the sunset, it's just beautiful. And it is getting more touristy, but it's still, I would say, off the beaten track a little bit. The best thing on Oahu, which is not near my district, I always tell people is the Kaneohe Bay Sandbar At low tide, it's a sandbar that is exposed. So it's a beach in the middle of the ocean. And it's surrounded by these beautiful, pristine green mountains. And it's just spectacular. You can kayak out there. It's not a secret. It's well-known here in Hawaii. But even a lot of Hawaii folks don't go out there because it is a little bit less convenient to get out there. It's a little bit far. But it's just magical. And finally, I would say, despite our scenery and weather being so perfect and well-known, A lot of people don't realize how good the food is here. I think Hawaii is one of the great food destinations in the world. And poke is something that has made it around the world. I'm sure you can get poke, but the original here in Hawaii is totally different from what you get on the mainland or overseas. It's much more focused on the fish itself. There's a lot more of the fish. It's a lot fresher. It's less expensive. And not just that, but we have fantastic Japanese food, the best Japanese food outside of Japan, because we have a large Japanese community here. We have fantastic Korean food, local food, which is kind of the original fusion food that I call it. They're fantastic local restaurants. Anyway, I could go on and on, Ryan, and I
0: have gone on and on, but just let me know and I'll take you to all the secret local spots, Ryan. I love it. I already had a soft spot for Hawaii because it's just so magical. And I think you may know that Santa Cruz was the first place the Hawaiian princes surfed on the mainland. So we have this special bond across the Pacific, but now I'm inspired to come and spend a little bit more time sitting and watching sunsets, but also thinking about housing policy with you. And I want to thank you for joining us today and thank you for the work you're doing that's going to make a big difference in your community, but also potentially in so many other communities where housing is a challenge and land is scarce and we have to figure out a better way to ensure future generations be able to to stay in our communities.
1: Well, thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate that in these turbulent times when it's so easy just to lose all hope or to conversely just become a total extremist person who wants to burn the whole thing down. That you are helping to educate people about this honorable profession, about the ways that people can make a positive difference in their communities. And not by doing it in like any super glamorous way or even necessarily any super high profile way, but the ways that people are, you know, step by step, little by little, improving our communities, because that's the only way that we're going to get ourselves out of this situation and make America this fulfill the promise that the founders have for it. And it's super inspiring, Ryan. Thank you for doing this incredible
0: work. Thank you. We'll both just keep grinding along till we get the change we need. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good one, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Rogue Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.